Hello to all my face-off fans. Beautiful anonymous. One hour, one phone call, no names, no holds barred. I'd rather go one-on-one. I think it'll be more fun. And I'll get to know you and you'll get to know me. Hi, everybody. Chris Gethard here. Welcome to Beautiful Anonymous. I gotta say, last week we further extended the raccoon-related controversies on this show, and uh, fan base has been whipped into a frenzy. All their opinions on raccoons. Who knew, who knew that raccoons would come to have such a strong presence on this show after all these years? I am glad it's happened that we've had multiple raccoon-related calls. Anyway... Thanks to everybody who's been coming out to shows. Buffalo was amazing. Detroit was amazing. Anybody who was at that live taping in Detroit, that was one of the best nights of my life. Performing-wise, one of the best nights I've ever had. And I think a lot of people in that room felt great about that taping. I cannot wait for you guys to hear the live taping in Detroit. And uh, thanks to everybody who's uh, coming out to the shows. If you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, I think you should still be able to get tickets for Baltimore, Maryland, and Richmond, Virginia. But they're going fast. So jump on them. Okay, this week's episode, this caller, you know, I was so struck by, this caller's dealing with stuff in the past, present, and future. This caller, some stuff in his past that was not his fault that he has to deal with. In a very fascinating way, some stuff in his present where I give him a lot of credit because he's going, you know, I, I see the parts where I have to take responsibility for this. And then some stuff in the future that's very sad that we all have to deal with, which is, you know, seeing family members at the end of their lives. So it's a lot. There's about five different things. We point this out in the call. There's like five different topics that could have been a whole call. This caller's just having a stretch with some bad luck and it's dealing with it all. But then, of course, in the way that always opens my eyes with this show, there's some laughs in there. There's some humanity in there. Rolling with the punches. The longer I do this show, the more I have realized every single person I meet is rolling with their own punches. And this caller, I think, is yet another great reminder that that is the case. I uh, I hope you get something out of this one. Thank you for calling Beautiful Anonymous. A beeping noise will indicate when you are on the show with the host. What's up, Chris? It's good to talk to you, man. How are you today? How am I today? You know I always like to answer. Honestly, I'll tell you, I'm feeling pretty good. I've been in my head the past couple weeks thinking hard about some certain choices I have to make in my life professionally. But today I'm feeling pretty good, which makes me feel like maybe I've made some decisions that I'm happy with. Sorry to be vague. No, no, I I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. That's a good feeling. Yeah, it's like one of those things where I was sitting on the fence about some stuff, and I was like, you know what? To most people, this would be the illogical choice, but the way I've always tried to operate, I think I got to... I basically made a choice where I gave away a ton of money. But in my heart, I knew it was the right choice. And I think I have to be okay with that because I try to put integrity first. Yeah. Yep. And exactly what you just said. That, that's, that's the way we think about it. Yeah, you'll be fine. Thanks, man. Thanks so much. How about you? How are you doing? Well, uh, that, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, I always said if I got through, I wouldn't make it one of those sad calls, but, uh, been going through a little bit of a rough patch lately. My, um, my mom isn't doing so well. I'm so sorry and, uh, to hear that. 
Thank you. No, yeah, it's, it's okay. She's, I moved away from home about four years ago and, you know, I come back every now and then for different things. And I flew back last night, um, to spend a few days with her tomorrow's her birthday, but, um, things have really, she started having some health problems in April, I want to say. And, um, I went back home in May for, um, my grandfather's funeral and I saw her then and she was starting to look a little bad, but things have really escalated in the last, uh, month or so. And to the point where she has, uh, you know, nurses from hospice involved and, um, they said, you know, it could be weeks, it could be months, but, you know, it's not going to get better. She has the final stages of uh, COPD, lung failure, from mostly from the lifetime of smoking. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a, a loaded uh, kind of thing to deal with because she's, you know, had her issues for years, and I've always tried to help her get better, but I came to peace a long time ago with the fact that, uh, you know, you can never really force anyone else to make any changes that they don't want to, and you can only do so much, and right now I'm just kind of trying to be in a place of uh, love and support and um, spend as much time with her this weekend as I can, and um, so yeah, I'll probably, I might come back home again depending on how things are going in the next month or two, but otherwise I might not come back again until, you know, things are more final. So just trying to enjoy this weekend with her and stay on the positive side. And I'm going to see some really good friends I haven't seen in a little while tonight. So that'll be good. That's a rough year. I'm really sorry that you're dealing with that. That's uh, I think for a lot of us, I, I'm, I'm both of my parents are still with me, but it's, it's, it's always such a fear. It's always such a fear. Yeah. And then, you know, you get to that, you've gotten to that point in your life where you have to deal with that reality. And it's uh, it's something I, I have always had an extreme amount of anxiety about eventually dealing with. And I'm so sorry that you're dealing with it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think once I started to hear that, you know, things were really going to be taking that you know, drastic of a turn, I started all, you know, obviously a million thoughts run through your head. And one of them for me was, um, you know, I'm, I'm single, uh, no prospects of marriage probably on the horizon anytime soon, you know, no kids. And so my, um, I lost my dad when I was 17. So I immediately think about all those things of like, well, you know, I guess she won't ever know wife or kids if I ever, you know, if I ever have them. And at this point in May, it was my last living grandparent that passed away. And so, you know, family is just a bunch of aunts and uncles and cousins at this point who I, you know, still love, obviously, and I'm close with. But um, it's just, yeah, it's a weird thought. To, um, I turned 31 this year. And so it's like, you know, I, in in many ways, I still feel kind of uh, younger than I am, but things like this kind of, I guess, are like benchmarks of like, wow, okay, adulthood's really hitting, you know, and getting to the point where there's less less loved ones alive. So you, you have, you're an only child then? I am technically. Um, I 
found out about a half sister a little bit later in life. Um, so that was kind of crazy. Both of my parents were married when they were really young, but they were never married to each other. Um, and when my dad was about 21, uh, him and his first wife got pregnant and they weren't really prepared for it. And they ended up putting her up for adoption. And so growing up, I think I was probably eight or nine when he first told me about her, but it would always be just like something we would mention every few years because he didn't really know where she was. And he'd be like, yeah, you know, you have a have a sister out there somewhere. I think her name is this. And then after he passed away, she contacted our family. And, uh, yeah, I was 17 and she contacted us, wrote a letter and introduced herself. And I wrote her an email and didn't hear anything back. And then about three years later, I got a random message on Facebook. And that was my first time seeing, you know, her face. And uh, it was weird because she didn't look like my, my dad. I guess she looks like her birth mom. And we would talk every now and then and try to meet up, but things would always kind of get in the way. And long story short, that was about a year and a half ago. I was coming home for Christmas, and she knew I was going to be home for a little while. And so she's like, okay, I'm going to drive down, and we'll finally actually meet. And so I've only met her once, but since then we've stayed in contact and um i i love her like she's amazing so it, it's always been a weird thing of like i identify as an only child but now i do kind of have a sister and once i met her it was so awesome like you know showing all my friends pictures of my sister and how cool she is so that was a long answer but no, sort, of, a, sort of an only child fascinating a fascinating lair is there are you close enough with her to lean on her in terms of everything that's happening now? Like not to a little bit. She lost her, she lost her birth mom. I, I don't remember how long ago, but has, you know, she's reached out and, you know, said that she can relate a little bit. Um, she wanted to come down and spend some time with me this weekend, but it, it just ended up not working out because I had to book the flight. So last minute, but she's busy. She's got a, a husband and, two little boys. I still haven't met them yet, but they're really, they're really cool. Um, so yeah, maybe, you know, I mean, I'll definitely get to know them a little bit more in the future. So that's, that is comforting to, to know that however long my mom has left, you know, I, I still do have my sister to lean on in the future. And yeah. Wow. What an, <laughs> yeah, that's a, uh... What a what a fascinating connection to rebuild with your sister so later in life and now due to some unfortunate, you know, very sad stuff, it's headed to a point where this rebuilt this rebuilt relationship is, is your immediate family. That's that's rare. That's rare. You have a lot to wrap your head around this year, my friend. That's a lot. Oh, you you have no idea, brother. That's I don't even know if I could really get into it, but I had a little bit of a legal troubles in the last year and a half that have really made it a, a rough patch. No, no, I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know if, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's anonymous, but um, just the fact that the whole case isn't fully settled yet, I don't know how much I could or not say, but that it involved a big misunderstanding with, with multiple parties and uh, 
basically I was in a, I was in a car accident and there was a lot of other cars involved and it was really late at night and it was pouring rain and I was, I was hit head on and then lost sight of the person that hit me and other witnesses and other cars involved were telling me to get out of the way and go because there was such a busy intersection. And I tried to get information from the person, but I didn't even see their license plate or anything like that. Um, and so I, I went on because I wasn't hurt. And then I tried to report it and the police didn't want to help me and they didn't want to make a report. And they kind of talked to me a, out of making a report. And then like a month later, I get a phone call from my insurance and, uh, and they said, Hey, I think your vehicle was involved in a hit and run. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Did you get the other person's information? And they said, no, I think you were the one that hit and ran. And I was like, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. That's not how it happened. And I ended up just kind of being stupid and not getting any information from any of the other people that were involved because they were shooing me away from the scene. And it ended up where it was a whole big mess. It was a couple months of dealing with insurance companies and they got it all settled and they told me it was all good and we worked it out. And then a month after that, I get contacted by the police and they had me come in for an interview and I was, you know, fully cooperating. I have never been in trouble with the law or anything like that. So I didn't really, I guess I was a little naive, but they told me, okay, we'll contact you. Once we know more, you'll find something out. And then I get woken up by like six, like undercover dressed police officers at like 6 a.m. And they said that they had a warrant for me. What? Yeah, dude, it was, I was hyperventilating. I didn't know what they were talking about. I ended up getting cuffed in my driveway. My roommates were all there and I had to spend a day in jail only to find out that the reason they arrested me was because they said that they sent a letter, but then they asked me about my address and they sent it to the wrong address. So I never knew that I was supposed to appear for for an interview. So then they issued a warrant, and that was why I was arrested. It had no bearing on anything of my situation other than they sent it to the wrong address. So they had the right and, address when it was time to cuff you up in front of everybody. They got the address right exactly. that time. Exactly. That's what, that's what I said. I was like, well, obviously you know where to find me. And uh, so, yeah, that began a little bit of a distrust of my uh, – my local police department and uh and then it's just been a year of uh going to court and trying to settle the case and um yeah there there've been some ramifications that aren't fully even settled yet but that was that was the main uh bulk of it was I mean, we could talk for another hour and a half on just my day in jail and what that was like. That was crazy. Wow. Well, this, I gotta say, this is a, a run of, a run of bad breaks that I wouldn't wish on anybody. Jeez. 
Jeez. And then the whole, so the whole time you're sorting out this legal mess, you're also sitting there going, guys, can we just, can we just sort all this stuff out? Cause I have, I, my mom is sick and I'd love to be able to go visit her without this stressing me out. Yeah. Too. Well, that's even, that's just more recent. That's just in the last, you know, few months. I've been dealing with this since uh, March of last year in Oof. total from when the accident happened to, to, to now. Um, so yeah, it's not, still fully going to be over for probably at least another six months to a year, but the worst parts of it are over. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I still kind of have to find the silver lining and, you know, be grateful that nothing worse happened. And I ended up taking a deal with them to avoid jail time. So, you know, I'm like, well, at the end of the day, you know, I had to take some level of responsibility. I wasn't obviously trying to, you know, avoid anything when that happened. It was, I think, looking back, it was a just a severe wrong case of mental shock and not making the right decisions that I normally would. I mean, here I am hit head on. I'm seeing all these other people, but I don't see the person that hit me. They're telling me to go. And at the moment, I feel fine. So I'm like, well, okay, I guess I how can I even talk to the person that hit me if they're not here? And right. it turned out that they were, they were just farther back. And, you know, from their perspective, they probably thought I was a drunk driver or something like that. And that's the part that really kills me is I know that I was completely sober and I could have proven that, but I wasn't still there by the time cops showed up. And so I had no way to really defend myself. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, it, you know, something's still got to be done. And I just feel really bad for the other person involved, but I can't really talk to them about it because it's all still pending in the legal system. And I, you know, I don't blame them if, if they're angry, but like I said, I, I understand how they probably, you know, assume things were and it just kills me that I can't really, you know, you know, do anything else to defend myself, I guess, in that way. Wow. Wow. But, you know, yeah. So you had said we could talk about it for an hour and a half, and I'm sure we don't want to dwell on it for an hour and a half. Give me the bullet points. What's the day in jail like? When you get woken okay. up at 6 a.m. Yeah, and put in yeah. cuffs, give me the bullet points of that day. Yep. Let's go ahead and pause there. This is clearly going to go in a different direction, and we're all going to hear about something pretty fascinating. And I promise you, this is just one of many turns that this conversation takes. In the meantime, check out our advertisers. It helps the show so much when you do. Use those promo codes. A lot of cool stuff. I'm, I'm genuinely proud of the advertisers we get with this show. Check them out. We'll be right back. Thanks again to all of our advertisers. Now let's get back to this conversation. When you get woken up at 6 a.m. Yeah. and put in cuffs, give me the bullet points of that day. Yep. Bullet points are, well, one thing I took away from it is the whole process is uh, just one holding cell after another. You know, I'm booked, I'm fingerprinted, uh, uh, DNA swab, mugshot, 
I still can't find my mugshot online or anything. I really want to see what my mugshot looks you like. Do. You do. You, you're, uh, you're many, I would imagine, might go, I, I think I will avoid that picture, but you have, a, you have a morbid fascination. You want to know what the expression on your face was. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, because I'm notorious for always taking bad license pictures and stuff like that. And my <laughs> license picture right now definitely looks like a hardened criminal. What if you're super uh, like but, charming and handsome in your mugshot? What if it's the opposite? What if you're like, man, I, I can't take a I, good license picture. I look the best I ever have in that mugshot. The lighting was great. <laughs> uh, I doubt it, Chris. I was pretty haggard and still tired. But yeah, they put me in a cell and there was one guy that I met early on who could kind of tell it was my first time and he gave me a little bit of advice. I don't really remember too many of the specifics, but then eventually you're put in a, a big room with a whole bunch of like kind of metal bunk beds. And a lot of guys were um, in and out, like they would call and post bail. And uh, they told me that I had to wait until the next day to see a judge. So I was really there in jail over 24 hours. Sitting in the on the bunk and they'll come by once an hour and, uh, uh, you know, playing the, the Billy club against the bars and go through and shine a bright flashlight and make sure everyone's accounted for. And then they walk out and the food was, you know, not good. Um, there was at one point it was just like a plate of mush and mush. That was pretty gross. It, I don't even, they say that it looked like it was supposed to be meatloaf, but it was, closer in consistency to like mashed potatoes. Was, uh, <laughs> the dinner was the best. There was like a ham sandwich and some garden chips. Okay. Now when you're in jail, do you, let, you get to wear your own clothes or do they put you in a jumpsuit? Is that prison, the jumpsuit? I guess. Or if they know that you're like being sentenced to a longer, you know, stay. Yeah. I was just in my, my street clothes the whole time. Um, and then, I mean, really the most of the action was the second day, early in the morning, they took me and they shipped a bunch of us. They said we had to go see a judge downtown. And uh, so we got on a bus. Oh and, my God, um, this is a nightmare day you had. Because you sound like a pretty... You have no idea. And especially for me, for not, especially like, imagine also keep in mind at this point, at this point, I'm still not even aware of the whole address mix up. All right. I know is that they say hey, you had a failure to appear, you didn't appear. And I'm just like still so baffled and confused by the whole thing. And then it wasn't until right before I saw a judge, which was like four o'clock the next day, uh, that I got visited by like a public defender and he's looking through files and he's like, so what's this other address? And that's when I learned what happened. So but, you're sitting there um, and it's like, one I live at 84 Maple Street. They sent it to 48 Maple <laughs> Street. And then... Does, well, some, not even, yeah. does someone just go, hey, uh, hey, man, that's our bed. Why, why don't you head home? Like, how quickly does this wrap up after that point where you at least get to not be in jail while this is sorted out? Well, the judge at first didn't uh, want to let me go because oh. she said, well, he didn't appear in court. He might be oh. a flight risk. Oh, and, no. <laughs> so then I'm just thinking, but she ended up changing her mind because the public defender, whoever guy, you know, kind of really fought hard and just, you know, kind of pled my case and she let me go. But then, um, the funniest part <laughs> was 
after you you know you have to you know you're going to be released you still have to go back to the big holding cell where there's like 50 other dudes and wait for everybody to be released at the end of their like business day like 4 35 o'clock so i spent about another hour knowing that i was going to be released by having to wait and then they take you down and they're about to like open up the big like kind of like garage sliding door to like free everybody but they said all of your personal belongings that you had on you you know your id and phone or whatever they're going to be at this other building that you have to walk to and uh i wear eyeglasses and i didn't have my glasses with me when i was arrested so (laughs) i was like well i can't see so i asked one of the other guys i was like hey are you going over to that building to get your stuff would you mind if i walk with you and he's like yeah no problem and uh Oh man, I want to say his name, but it was an alias anyway. Uh, let's just call him. It wasn't. This isn't what he called. This isn't what he called himself, but it's pretty close, and you get the idea. He's like, my name is Snakes, and I was like, Snakes. He's like, yeah, they call me Snakes. Uh, I'm in here for meth. I don't do it. I just sell it. Oh wow! Uh, I walked out hand in hand with Snakes the meth. <laughs> I hate to giggle, but this is just building in a way where no. I have no other. Oh, option. absolutely no! You have to find the humor in it. You have to find the humor in it. But the the one thing is, uh, are you familiar with the Breakfast Club, Chris? The movie, the Emilio Estevez, Anthony yeah. Michael Hall, uh, Molly Ringwald, Winona Ryder. Yeah, of oh no, wait, not Winona Ryder. Ali Sheedy. Ali, Ali Sheedy. Yep. Yeah. Classic. So there was a moment when we're all standing there in a line, about you know, about to be uncuffed together, and we're about to be freed. And at this point, I'd been kind of making small talk with a lot of the guys in there. And they were nice guys. But I, I was so tempted. It's still a regret that I didn't say this. Because I think there's a line like this towards the end of Breakfast Club. And just as they were about to open the door, I was about to say, Hey, guys, you think we'll all still be friends after this? <laughs> and <laughs> just to cut the tension. <laughs> And none of them would have gotten the reference, and it would have it would have led to. It sounds like with your luck, you would have like <laughs> tried to make a joke. Someone would have misinterpreted the joke, and you would have wound up in some other nightmare. That's a nightmare. And and listen, I just want to say, like, you're being very honest. You seem like a very reasonable guy. I'm, like you said, there's other people out there who maybe have a different version of the story where you ran. You're copping and saying, "I guy, I did leave, so I'm willing to." make a deal. I was in shock and whatnot. Who knows? I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that everything you're saying is the, you know, the perspective that you really believe. But I I mean, by anybody's standards, it sounds like you are not someone who, just the idea of you being the guy who wears glasses and they didn't even let you get your glasses. You spend a day in jail and then you got to walk down the block (laughs) with snakes. Sounds like, is it, was that the, I hate to laugh while I ask, but is where, Worst day, wor- at the le- very least, strangest day of your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and all of my friends and people that I do share it with are still just, they can't believe it. They're like, I, of all people that, you know, they would have known, they, I was the last person that they would have expected something like this happening. <laughs> and, um, and it's all because so. it was raining that day. It was just raining too hard and the cars peeled out. And next thing, oh, you know, another ironic thing, Chris, <laughs> is it was pouring rain in Los Angeles. I live in LA. Come on, it never rains. It never rains. It rains like four <laughs> days a year in Los Angeles. 
Tell me about it. So one one of the four days that it rains in your notorious drought-riddled city, the dominoes start falling in a way where he, you have now spent a year and a half sorting out a legal nightmare. And and uh, you got you got snakes leading you down the block by your hand because you're half blind. Oh, I mean, it was it was about a twenty minute walk through downtown through a train station. I'm thinking at any moment I was like, we we're in a big crowded place. He could just shank me right here, and no one would even notice for at least five minutes. Yeah, that. But I put my trust wow. in snakes. He led me uh, led me the right way. I do notice, you know, I've, I I. I have spent little time by the standards of someone who's, uh, you know, gets his screen his insurance through the Screen Actors Guild. I've spent woefully little time in L.A. I'm no L.A. hater. Some New Yorkers are anti-L.A. I like L.A. It's just I got, I've been able to get work, been able to get work in uh yeah in New York, so I stay here. But I will say, when I lived out there in 2004, I lived there for about half a year, and I did notice it never rains, but when it does. Even a light drizzle makes drivers in Los Angeles very skittish, I noticed. It seemed like people yeah. forgot how to handle rain or grew up not handling rain. And it it causes a lot of like herky-jerky defensive uh-huh. driving. I noticed that right away. So I know exactly what you mean. Because I grew up in the Northeast well, that's where... the other thing I'm always confused by. Most of us are not from L.A., so you would think people are prepared for those conditions but yeah um i was in another car accident in texas on my way to la i was driving cross country and it's so weird how these things are such coincidences but it was a bright sunny day and out of nowhere this is on a, a freeway somewhere between dallas and austin uh it just comes out of nowhere a big dark cloud pouring rain out of nowhere. Everyone slams on their brakes. I slam on mine. And there's this old beat up pickup truck that never stops behind me. And he rear ends me and caved in my bumper. Uh, I ended up making it to LA. The car was drivable, but like four days after I landed in LA, uh, the car just died and the accident had caused some kind of slow oil leak. So like that was literally the first thing I had to do after moving cross country to a new city was get a new car. And then now four years later or three years later, I guess at the time this happened also with my new car in the rain. So luckily it doesn't rain that often in LA, but whenever it does after this most recent accident, I, I get very, uh, uh, kind of skittish and have flashbacks and I just don't like to drive in the rain anymore. Hey, man, I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question. I say this so genuinely. Yeah. No judgment, not trying to make a joke out of it. Anything yeah. good happen to you that you want to share? You got anything good that's ever happened to you that you want to share? Uh, Sure, yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of good stuff going on around these rough patches. Um, I just finished a film. Um, we don't have to talk too much about that whole that whole stuff, but that was why I moved to LA. Uh, I've always been acting and writing and stuff. And my best friend and I, we grew up together in our hometown here that I'm visiting right now. And uh, it took us about a year and a half to to finish. We were kind of 
been working on it while this whole legal thing's been going on. But about a week ago, we uh, put in a final cut for a 28-minute short film that we're really uh, proud of and going to start entering that into festivals. And we're writing a feature version of it that we want to come back home and shoot in our hometown if we can raise the money for a feature and, um, you know, a lot of other stuff kind of around that. But that's been the most recent really good thing I've been happy about. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. Congrats. And oh, before I I forget, I I don't want to reveal myself, I guess, too much, but we were talking about Los Angeles and um, you and I actually met in L.A. at the last live taping. Oh, at Dynasty Typewriter. Yeah, great venue. That a fantastic comedy venue, and they are doing. I follow them uh, on social media, and they are doing great things in Los Angeles. Dynasty Typewriter is a fantastic venue, and it's it seems like it's building into something more and more. That's very cool. Thank you for coming out. An amazing thing too, because you were at the live taping. That was the one where the girl's house burned down, and she had Cedric the donkey. I was the one that asked about the donkey, and then you signed uh, your book. To me, hey blank, thanks for the donkey question. Look at that. So another caller with historically bad luck in the moment. It's almost like you somehow karmically linked yourself as two bad <laughs> as two bad luck Johnnies linked. Yeah. It's like the ring. Remember that movie The Ring? Where you watch the videotape yeah, and then you're, you're cursed to die? It's like you asked a question about Cedric the donkey, and now you have the bad luck of the caller whose house burned down. And then someday someone's going to tweet something about you and unknowingly take on the mantle of the be- official, beautiful, oh, anonymous bad luck Johnny. That's the nickname I'm going to give to Oh, him. I hope not. <laughs> Man, I have to say, can okay, can I just say too? Because you, because this is I, who would wish who would wish these stories on anyone? And you're you're just like man, and I get it, but. Let me just say a couple things about Los Angeles too. You go out there to yeah. chase your dream and it's it is a city full of opportunity. It really is, but they're not easy to access. It's at the end of the day you're living in a desert. It's hot and it's dry. It's beautiful, but you can it can also just be the sea, the leaves never change. There's no seasons. It's the same every day. I also found and yeah. and I would have to imagine that with things like uh, dating apps and ride shares like Uber and Lyft must have changed the game. Cause I found Los Angeles. I was single when I lived there years ago, 15 years ago, but I found immediately, I went, Oh, being lonely in Los Angeles is a, it's a real loneliness. Cause you're in your car all the time. It's people have to valet park. It's not like, it's not, there's some other cities where public transportation allows a little bit more like, let's go bounce around from bar to bar. There's a little bit less of that because you got to drive, you got to park. It's a tough town yeah. and you show up to pound the pavement and chase your dream. And it, that's tough for most people, let alone you get thrown in jail and your your grandparents pass away, your, your mom is sick. This is a... This is not an easy town. How long have you been there? How many How many years? So Sunday, so wait, yeah. Tomorrow is my mom's birthday. Sunday is my four-year anniversary of the day that I arrived in LA. Wow. Sunday is four years. Four years is just about when I think some people feel like they're finding their footing. 
how do you feel about the idea that some people say that Los Angeles is a town that tries to kind of break you? And it, it feels like it has really directed that energy at you quite hard, I'm sorry to say. You know, I agree, but I've also, um, I've set up such a life there that I'm, I'm still in it for the long haul. I, yeah. I get attached to, I get attached to people or, uh, you know, routines pretty easily. I lived in the same house, my mom's house here that I'm staying at for 27 years, my whole life. I go out there, I crashed with a buddy for three months on his couch, and then I found a place of my own. I rent a room in a house um, with uh, two roommates, and it's month to month, but I think of that as my, you know, my home. I don't, I really like the house I live in. I have so many awesome friends, and, uh, you know, and like I mentioned, my best friend that I grew up with. And, um, so, you know, him and I hang out multiple times a week and there's so much out there that I really like about it. I always tell people it's, it's way too expensive and too crowded. Those are not easy to deal with at all, but, um, I still, you know, I don't see myself leaving, um, anytime soon at least. And, uh, I love my, my home state and I've been enjoying more trips home, you know, even if there aren't always for the best reasons mm -hmm. but yeah it has really you know thrown some curveballs at me but um i started really kind of learning uh how to bounce back you know from when i was 17 uh, wait can i just check in real quick how much time do we have left 25 minutes oh my gosh this they don't they don't lie when they say these breeze by well if uh if we could if I just feel like I would be remiss if I didn't tell you this one uh, crazy story about my dad. Let's do it. Before we do it, can I, just offer, can I just offer one thing up before we move on? Yes. You're describing your life. A lot of tough breaks. My heart goes out to you. I mean that genuinely. I'm going to say something that a lot, of, a lot of people listening might be turned off by what I'm about to say. But I'm going to speak to you as a creative person. You know. Yeah. One-to-one -one because... I feel like I do root hard for the creative people in this world. And you just said, I'm not giving up. And I'm so impressed and so happy to hear you say that. And I'm going to say something. Here's the part that might turn some people off. And I'm not saying any of this is a positive at all. But you used the phrase before, we got to find the silver linings. As a creative person, when life hands you hard stuff, they're also handing you fuel. And you never sit. There's some people who get in a sick loop where they sit and start to pray for bad things. They start to pray for rain, right? That's a phrase. They start to say, oh, this, and you're not, you're not. But to be 31, which like you said, still pretty young, single, no kids, all you have is yourself. It's a tough place to wind up, but it means you're in the ultimate place a creative person can be in many ways, which is that the only responsibilities you have are to yourself and taking your shot. And there is something there mm. that when you're on the other side of the pain and the grief and the mourning and all of these things that are valid and necessary and that I'm not trying to discount, I always feel, I've been thinking a lot lately, like I mentioned up top, 
this idea of like, where am I yeah. standing in my career? And I realized at the end of the day, art, art is ultimately, I think, a young person's domain because the only responsibility that the best artists have are to process the world and spit out their art in response to it. And I have a feeling you're going to make some great stuff and these hard times are only going to make you more resilient in the process of pursuing your dreams. I really feel that. Man, Chris, I'm going to cry. I really, that means a lot. And I think I needed to hear that right now. You're entering a phase of life where you're going to be on the other side of some extraordinarily hard stuff. And you've been dealing with it since you were young, your dad, all this stuff. But at the end of the day, you're going to be left a a lone wolf Mm -hmm. with a clear path to just go for it. There's a part of me that feels like when you get there, it's going to feel good. You deserve it. All right. You have a story about your dad. We have 22 minutes left. And wow, we clearly have to pause there. This guy's got more crazy stories? Who would have thunk it? Check out these ads. Helps the show when you do. Let's get back to this phone-based conversation. All right. You have a story about your dad. We have 22 minutes left. Okay. Um, yeah, so my dad, uh, my mom and dad, you know, grew up in the this, this same town here and uh, had me when I think they were both 30 or 31. And um, when I was about two or three, he decides to move across the country to Arizona. And my mom and I still had our house, but he had us, he called us out there we stayed for about seven months while he was trying to recruit us to move to Arizona with him. And, um, it was right before I you know, had started school. So I wasn't in school. It was just a lot of memories of, uh, you know, playing around with other kids and the apartment complex and going around and hiking and stuff like that. And, um, but after seven months, we, mom and I, and I'd never really, understood why I was out there for so long or why we came back, but she kind of always just sold it as, well, you know, it was time to go back and to start kindergarten. So I was like, okay. And as I grew up, um, you know, I would talk to my dad on the phone all the time and I would go out and visit him every summer and uh, for, you know, like maybe a month or so in between grades. And as I'm getting older, I'm starting to kind of put some pieces together that maybe some things about my dad are a little less than, uh, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, he's a little bit of a wild guy. And, you know, as I'm getting older and older, I find out, okay, maybe here and there, I, you know, he had a DUI and, you know, he told me a story about outrunning the cops when he was in his twenties trying to get pulled over and, you know, those kinds of things. He was a very, very loving guy, uh, a little bit immature for his age. He always was. He, you know, liked kind of to party a little bit too much. Um, but he was a good father. And when I was around him, you know, he made it clear I was the most important thing in the world to him. Well, anyways, my sophomore year of high school, he decides to move back, uh, home where I am and gets his own house and he's, he's living in town and said he wanted to, you know, be back around me. Well, he comes over to my mom's house one day and they sit me down and they say, growing up, we always told you there'd be a lot of things we 
said that we wouldn't tell you until you're older. Well, you're almost 18 now. We're going to tell you some stuff that we always said we'd tell you when you're older. Now's the time. So I'm like getting my popcorn ready, like, okay, let's hear it. <laughs> and they say, do you remember why we left Arizona after seven months when you were like four? And I was like, I don't know. It wasn't it to start kindergarten. And they said, well, no, this is what happened. And I'm going to try to bullet point it like I did before with the jail stuff. But this is all true, by the way. I told this story to a friend recently, and he was like, you know, you didn't have to embellish anything just to make this sound like a cool stuff. I was like, this is all true, man. My dad gets involved with one of his buddies out there, and they're, like, selling weed small time, you know, it's the early 90s. Mm-hmm. Well, somehow they get involved with these, like, high-level gangster guys. And there's long story short, they agreed to do this big marijuana drop off at the Phoenix airport. Bad idea. And my dad. Oh, yeah. My dad is the guy. I don't know what their plan was or how they were going to smuggle it in. But somehow involved my dad having a duffel bag full of weed. And he gets busted. What do you know? (laughs) By the feds. Yeah, because can we just say. When a cartel recruits you, a small-time dealer, to go to an airport and pull something up, this is because they don't want to do it. They assume there's a high chance of disaster, and they're putting you there. So your dad your dad falls for it. Your dad gets used as a patsy, effectively. Yeah. Uh-huh. He gets busted. He makes a call to my mom, who's at his apartment with me, and she has no idea about this. Mm-hmm. And he's like, surprise, you know, me and uh I don't know. He had a buddy that was involved. We'll call him like Joey. Me and Joey were doing this deal. And what they don't know is I only brought one of the bags. The other bag is in the closet. And you have to go get it and dump it at behind the bar, the dumpster where Joey works down the street, because they're going to have my information and they're going to probably come, you know, they're going to be there any minute. So my mom is just, you know, God damn it. She opens up the closet door. What do you know? There's a big black duffel bag that's got the other, you know, half the weed. And, but, you know, in this moment, in her shoes, what choice does she have? She takes me, jumps in the car, dumps it in a dumpster, comes back, decides then and there, I'm not raising my son around this. Yeah. Uh, You know, pack up your stuff. We're driving back home across the country. So. That's only part of it. We 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 get out of Dodge the next day. My dad gets arrested. Can I ask? Can I jump in uh, and ask? So did your dad leave half of it behind going, all right, so if I get caught, they'll think it all got confiscated, and then I get to sell all this stuff when I get out? Probably. I don't remember that being part of uh, uh, the story when they sat me down. Okay. Um, Okay. But, I mean, yeah, reason would probably deduce. That's probably what it was, yeah. So he ends up serving, uh, I think, a year with like a chain gang in the desert. <laughs> but the crazy part of it was that. Oh, here comes the crazy part. What was that? I yeah. just like they said, oh, so the crazy outside of my dad uh, doing a airport drop off with a cartel and getting uh, thrown into a chain gang. Here comes the crazy part. Hit me with the crazy part. Well, it wasn't even cartel. It was, I guess, East Coast mafia, like legit mafia members. Oh, perfect. And they found out that he had this family, and um, they were going to... My dad found out about this, I guess, while he was in jail or somehow, like, a few weeks later. They had a plan in place 
all ready to go to kidnap my mom and I <laughs> to stop my dad from testifying against them. And we like left town on like a Tuesday morning and the kidnapping would have went down on Wednesday. So the mafia so was about to kidnap you and my mom <laughs> if we hadn't already packed up the car. Okay. And they knew that these guys meant business about? because two weeks before my dad gets busted, I guess there was like a 20 year old girl who was already going to testify against them in a trial for some other case. And they found this like 20 year old, 20 year old girl tied her to a chair in a restaurant and set the place on fire. And then like what? two weeks later, my, my dad gets busted. What yeah. are you so, like, talking he knew about? These guys reputation i was waiting for that what are you even talking about what are you even talking about that's <laughs> you've lived some life my friend so you uh, dodged the kidnapping uh, almost, almost dodged the kid yeah dodged the kidnapping uh find out about this and then six months later my dad dies from a heroin overdose that whoa really Stopped me in my tracks. Um, didn't know that he had ever even touched anything that heavy. Uh, apparently, he had gotten addicted to it while he was in Arizona. Got clean. When he moves back home, my hometown does have a, a, a little bit of an epidemic in our county. And I guess he somehow got hooked back on it. Never told me. I never. I had no idea until it was too late. And it was... Uh, three weeks before my 18th birthday and they, they found him yeah, with a, with a needle in his arm. And, um, at first they told me it was a heart failure. And then a few days later, my mom and I were at his house kind of cleaning up stuff. And on, a, on the way back, she tells me, Hey, you know, your grandpa's probably too ashamed to tell you this, but it was an, it was a little bit more than a heart failure. And, uh, it was an accidental, he wasn't trying to overdose or anything. It was like a dealer that gave him like a bad dose, that a lethal dose that ended up killing two other people. And the dealer wow. ended up serving time. Wow. Because that's a, they will now, my understanding is they will arrest dealers for murder when that happens. Um, yeah. At least in modern. Yeah. I'm going to ask a morbid question. I'm sure it's passed yeah. through your head. If there were people out to get to your dad to the point where they were willing to kidnap you and your mom, was there ever a passing thought of, I wonder if this was staged to look like an overdose? No, just because of how much time had passed. I never thought that. Um, my mom does think that the girlfriend he was living with at the time may have had something to do with it, or at least was there, but lied about being home at the time. Um, and there's no real way to prove that. And I don't even know where she is anymore, but nothing would really surprise me if she was involved in shady stuff. Cause she was a little bit, uh, yeah, she was, she was pretty rough. I never liked her, but in terms of that, no, I don't think it was anything involving those guys as far as my dad's death. Wow. And, uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's all of the, the, the stuff that's really hit me. I swear I've lived a really positive, loving life. I, I have so much to, to be grateful for and that I'm, that I'm happy about. Um, I didn't really intend for this, you know, whole episode to be such a downer, but well, my life, that's, when life, when life hands you lemons, 
you call Beautiful Anonymous and you squeeze the lemons. <laughs> That's what you do. You don't make lemonade. If you're a fan of this show, you don't make lemonade. What you do is you call Beautiful Anonymous and you just talk in depth about the lemons. And then we figure it out. Yeah. I, I do want to ask, it. the story you just told, it makes me think about your half-sister because I'm sure that on her end, you know, someone given up for adoption who reconnects might say, hey, do you have any stories about our dad? Mm-hmm. Does that put you in a weird position yeah, to go, well, yeah, I got a couple stories. Yeah. Sit down. I told her, I told her that one. Um, she doesn't know about my my legal stuff the last year um, just because we had, I don't know, there's certain things I w- w- would have rather explained in person and we just haven't had that opportunity. But yeah, she knows some of those stories and, you know, she never got to meet him or talk to him. But um, that is a weird thing is, um, you know, when I met her for the first time, we had all these strange things in common through our blood connection to our father. And we even showed up without talking in advance or planning or anything. We both showed up wearing a Navy top and black jeans. And there's this picture of us. It looks like we completely choreographed the whole thing. And it was just like all these like little things that I was like, wow, is this, you know, does DNA have, have more in common with the two of us than I thought? What a head spinning call. You brought up, (laughs) you've like fully explained four things that normal meeting, meeting your adopted half sibling could be its own call. Dealing with the death of one of your parents could be its own call. Having a day in jail could be its own call. Having your dad <laughs> pull a lot of the stuff he pulled could be its own call. The Everything about the car yeah. accident could be its own call. Yeah. Man. You know what I've always wanted to, to, to ask? Uh, and it just went through my brain. Simple question. What... Do you have a favorite movie? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I'm just trying to. I, I always wondered if, what your favorite movie is. <laughs> when what, I, I do have a favorite movie, but first, I, I just want to say on my end to all the listeners out there, even I don't care at this point. We got nine minutes left. You've just you've laid out the image of living basically a Breaking Bad life. And you want to know my favorite movie? Sure, it's uh, it's yeah. I would say it's the very underrated John Cusack movie, Gross Point Blank, from nineteen ninety six. I think it's an amazing movie. I will say weirdly, there's like a a you will I I will say not very often, um, but every now and then you'll meet a comedian who's completely obsessed with that movie because comedically there's something really special about it. That's a great movie. I've only seen it once. I gotta I gotta revisit it. It's been about probably eight years. That's a, that's a good choice. It's really good. It's about an assassin who goes back to his high school reunion, and I love it because it's a very, very absurd premise, and they don't shy away from <laughs> absurd moments, but it's also played extraordinarily heartfelt and real, and the main character sorts out a lot of very genuine feelings under the umbrella of the absurd yeah. premise, and it's funny, and Cusack plays it so grounded and smart, and I love that movie. Oh, he crushed it. I love that. I got to rewatch right. that. I just movie. had to know. What's your favorite movie? Please uh, say Ballistic X versus Sever. <laughs> Imagine if you went, it's, balli- <laughs> it's Ballistic X versus Sever. Remember that one? 
I don't know I why remember that... the posters for it. I don't think I ever saw it. Yeah, you and me both. Mine I don't know why that popped into my head. What's your favorite movie? If I have to choose one, it's Dumb and Dumber. Wow, that says a lot. Revealing choice. Dumb and Dumber, The Dark Knight, and Goodwill Hunting. Those are my top three. That's a wide breath. I feel like, though, based... That's fascinating because I feel like based on everything we've learned about you today via your stories of your past, that is that is a common you liking Dumb and Dumber, Dark Knight, and Goodwill Hunting really makes a lot of sense. I mean, Goodwill Hunting has all the uh right dad stuff that 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 famous monologue about my dad wasn't the best, right? Dark Knight has all the criminal elements of you winding up in jail, person who's looking for justice. Batman himself lives right on the fringe of is he the hero or the villain because he's a vigilante and it's dark. And Dumb and Dumber, yeah, you've dealt with a lot of dumb stuff. It's a per. I feel like it's a, <laughs> I feel like it's a perfect mix that actually sums up your personality quite well. My dad was the one that introduced me to. Uh, in 1997 or maybe it was 98 because it was the year after it came out, but he introduced me to. Goodwill Hunting and Face Off in the same visit, and both of those became some of my favorite movies to this day. Face Off is just so ridiculous, but one of the best '90s action movies. I don't. I think I saw Face Off at a drive-in, or maybe it was Broken Ooh. Arrow. Face Off is Nicolas Cage and John Travolta, and they uh, surgically trade faces. Oh, yeah. Correct. <laughs> yes. How? C- and they. It, let me ask you something. They're underrated acting performances. Yeah. I want to ask you, because you're out there making the dream happen. Four years in LA. I'm 20 years chasing the dream in New York. And I've had I've had some success. I can't complain. But do you ever have these moments where you've done What's that? Yeah. Oh, I just said, and you've done excellent work. Thank her. you. That's nice. But you know, you're here, you're a creative person. You come up with ideas where you're like, this is a good idea. And no one wants to take it seriously. And yet, someone once gave millions of dollars to fund a film where Nicolas Cage and John Travolta <laughs> cut off their faces and sew each other's faces onto their own heads. How come I can't sell this thing that I think is just a really straightforward good idea that middle America will love? Meanwhile, the face-cutting movie, major distribution deal, two legitimate stars. I mean- these execs, man, they're all probably, you know. Don't get me started. I, those ideas sound great. You don't want to get me started. You want, if you ever want to get me worked up, it, 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 here's a tip to, to <laughs> listeners. You ever meet me in person and you want to get me worked up, say the word execs and watch my opinions Ooh. start flying. Oh, these professional middlemen who live off the efforts of the creative class. But don't get and Face Off was a legit hit. Let me also. Oh, was it John Woo? I've just been informed it was John Woo. Yeah, that, if you yeah. have Nick Cage, John Travolta, and John Woo in 1996 or seven, yeah, you're gonna get um, your you're gonna yep. get your movie made. That's fair. Uh, oh, I forget. Yeah, they're John Woo, Nick Cage, and John Travolta, and I'm the guy who uh, put <laughs> put a, a, a movie star in a dumpster, and that's the thing people say is my best piece of work. I put somebody in a dumpster and made people call on the phone and guess who was in the dumpster. And I wonder why the industry doesn't just hand me a, 
a deal. Anyway, I've managed to take your sad stories and your uh, your life that's under moments of duress, and I've managed to yet again make it about me and my trivial problems. I'm so sorry. Not at all. You're fine, man. You asked me what my favorite movie was, and that ends with me ranting about Hollywood, the Hollywood system. Wow. Three minutes left, man. You're going to be all right? You said it's your mom's birthday yeah, coming yeah. up? Yeah, tomorrow I was uh, I was in the mall buying her uh, a little gift when I um, when I got through. I mean, I had already been done shopping, so I'm just been sitting in the the parking lot to my mall. It's like a minute away from my house, so yeah. we're. Uh, I was actually going to go home and uh, look at some old photos with her and uh, show her um, the final cut of my movie. She hasn't seen that yet. We're going to do that, and then ah, meet up awesome. with some uh, some close buddies tonight, and then tomorrow's her birthday, and just going to do whatever she wants to do and she can't leave the house or really walk on her own. So I'm just, you know, going to be by her side a lot and whatever she wants to do, I'm just going to try to focus on, uh, you know, the quality time in case this is the last time, you know, this weekend. So I'll be okay, man. I've, I've had a lot of time to start digesting it from a lot of different angles. And, um, there's a couple good things that are on the horizon that I, I can't mention here but are definitely going to help uh, things in my future. So I kind of have that as well to kind of try to alleviate my mind. Well, I also just want to say connecting a lot of dots, and I'm sure speaking on behalf of a lot of the listeners, you grew up an only child. It was just you and your mom. Sounds like you guys went through a decent amount of stuff together. Probably a lot of times where you only had each other. And I just got to say, hearing what you just laid out as far as how you're coming home, doing these activities, prioritizing her comfort, her happiness, making sure you're sharing where you're at with her. I would have to imagine that as a mom, though she's sick and it's hard and there's pain involved, I have to imagine she's pretty thrilled to have a son who's stepping up the way you are. And uh, I hope that I hope that. I can do the same for my parents when, when the tough times hit, because it sounds like you're really, you're being a good, a good son. Thank you, man. That means, uh, really means the world to get to talk to you today. Um, you know, I've always felt a connection to you in the show, listen every week. And I just, um, yeah, it's, uh, I feel like this kind of happened at just the right time. And I needed to hear a lot of the things you said. So, um, you know, I hope our paths cross again one day. And But if they never do, um, you know, just know that you mean a lot to me. And uh, I really, you know, uh, felt good to talk to you today. Well, thanks. Thanks for the kind words. I'm sending you my best, thinking good thoughts for you. And you said it's a one-minute drive home. I'm going to ask you, drive carefully. You're in a phase of life where in one minute it sounds like... You could wind, You could somehow wind Dude, up it's like a cloudy day. I'm, it's a it's cloudy, cloudy day. day. I'm hoping no, no no rain comes down. Yes, be, <laughs> be careful out there. It sounds like in one minute you could somehow wind up in a scenario that leads to you like uh, living on your own on a deserted island, trying to pick coconuts to survive. <laughs> be careful out there. Sending a lot of love to both you and your mom, and uh, nothing but the best. Thanks a lot, brother. Thank you. Caller, thank you for the conversation. Like I said a bunch of times, especially towards the end there, sending you a lot of thoughts. Outside of all the crazy stories about jail and drugs and all that stuff, most of all, 
keep taking care of your mom. Hope everything with that goes as well as it can, although I know that that's a hard thing to even say. And um, so again, you're stepping up. You're being a good son, and that's what's most important. And sending you so many positive thoughts, in particularly related to that. Thank you for calling, sharing your story with me. Thank you to Jared O'Connell for chronicling these stories. Thank you to Harry Nelson for teasing me. At, at one point, Harry just typed the words Bear Burger on the screen, and I got real hungry, and then he was just being evil. It, it made no sense. So I guess thanks for tormenting me. Thank you to Shell Shag for the music. If you want to know about me, tour dates, stand-up, live, beautiful, anonymous, chrisgeth.com. That's where you can get all your tickets. If you like the show, one thing you can do, go to Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. It genuinely helps when you do. See you next time. Next time on Beautiful Anonymous, we talk to an actual real-life hero. Not a hero with a cape and a soundtrack and movies, but someone who helps those in need. I work for a girls' residential program for girls ages 14 to 18 that have experienced or are at high risk for being sexually exploited or they've already been trafficked. So that's uh, my job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I just had a, um, why it was an extra long shift was because we had an 8 a.m. staff meeting to go over some sexually exploited youth training. Yeah, so, yeah, staying up and awake for that and almost went to bed and then I saw the tweet and I was like, oh, I gotta try, I gotta try. That's next time on Beautiful Anonymous.